Welcome, my name is Dan Green, and this is a place where we break down the hard work and the hustle that it takes to pursue a career in stand-up comedy. My guest today is an actress, musician, and hilarious comedian who is rising quickly in the West Coast comedy scene. She performs regularly at the Hollywood Improv and the Comedy Store while juggling her musical duties as the drummer of the all-female band Mick and Maxie. Maxie Wittrack, welcome to The Verbal Gem. Woo-woo! Hell yeah! What's up, Dan? How are you doing today? You make me sound great. I'm the best. I'm just dipping into my um, allowed coffee, so it's good time. Well, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, let's just start this off. Um, we're going to start where you start. I mean, back in, back in 2002, you're a legit equestrian. Now to my, uh, to my non-country folk listeners, that's, that's a horse rider. All right. Uh, she's a, she was a world champion horse rider and pursuing a business degree. So how do you end up going from there to stand up? Oh, wow. I love, I love whatever press release you found that on. Um, I, you know, it was family stuff. I was pushed really hard as a kid in horseback riding and trained, trained, trained. And I'd always wanted to do just theater kids stuff or the things my friends were doing in high school. And, uh, when some stuff blew up with my mom in college, I just figured now's the time to try it. I was finally free to make my own decisions. And so I went to New York first and then LA for acting. And I was a couple years into acting when a teacher said, have you thought about stand-up? And I really just kind of was, <coughs> excuse me, lost on where to be trying to make my inroads in acting. So I figured, sure. And I didn't think it would turn into what it turned into. <laughs> well what was what was that first performance like and where was it your first stand-up i think my first stand-up was either the federal bar in noho uh or haha both in noho and it was awful but thankfully i didn't know it i had enough friends there pumping me up and i had enough of that beginner just fishbowl go in not even hearing what's happening around me to just do my do my set and think I was the best thing ever. Um, right. So I'm sure at the time I thought I was the new spectacle on the scene. Is that, 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 was that upstairs at the Federal? Yeah, you know at TK's shows. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting room, folks. It's, it's a thin room. All the audience is to the side of you, and there's probably only about two or three tables in front of you. And it kind of thins itself out to this. It's a long room. It's kind of like Westside Comedy Club in that respect. But it's a great equalizer because what I noticed is there are some people there who have headlined big places. And then there's people there who are just starting out. And everyone, a lot of people do about the same. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, I've, I've bombed there once or twice. I've, 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 it hasn't been a good room for me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because I'm a storyteller, I, I tend I tend to lose the audience. So if I con, I'll, I'll concentrate on one half of them, and I'll turn around. And the other half will just be chilling out or eating dinner, or oh, they just happen to be at a show where some bloke is talking in the background. And that's that's the kind of vibe I get there. I've yet to yet to crush the no, the no upstairs the noho. It's kind of been my uh, my boondoggle. I love that. That's your white whale is upstairs at the federal. <laughs> forget forget JFL. Forget. Yeah, House of Blues, just 
No, upstairs, upstairs in the federal. Upstairs in the federal is the one that dogs the shit out of me. Really? Oh, yes. I haven't been there in so long. I, I left it behind. I, I actually I bo- go ahead. I bombed that bad. I left my fucking credit card there. I forgot to close my tab out. So not only did I bomb, left me the show scene of the crime. And had to go back at the end of the show to pick up my credit card because I got all the way to the ha-ha and then went, fuck, because I tried to pay for a beer. And then had to walk back into a room I just bombed in, back past the guy who booked me, which was Vargas Mason. Oh! Vargas was like, what the fuck are you doing back in here? Just be like, I'm a supportive guy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, was it a bomb, a true, was was it a silent bomb or was it a bomb where people were yelling at you back? No, it wasn't that. It was a silent bomb. And the worst thing was it was a recovery bomb from a previous bomb where I was like, I'm coming back and I'm going to make this place my bitch. And I bombed it twice. And I'm like, son of a bitch. Fuck <laughs> so, yeah, it, uh, yeah, fucking no-ho. Fucking federal no-ho is, is yeah, this my, you're right, it's my white whale. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So where do you draw your material from? Are you are you like are you a joke writer or are you a storyteller? I'm definitely a joke writer, but I tr- I've been trying to, you know, get more comfortable telling stories and just trusting that even without a setup punch, setup punch that there will still be stuff there, which recently I've been experimenting with and it seems to be going well, but it definitely is scary to rely on um when you know that there are the audience's ear is tuned such that uh, a one-liner at a time setup punch will work. It's very tempting to just fall back to that, but that's something I've been trying to work on more. Yeah, I've um, yeah, I've I've had problems with that because I am a storyteller and uh, I'm trying to get into setup punch, but it's it's not something that like I like I I've done no comedy training, so I kind of I've kind of been winging it the whole damn way and. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Those. I'm realizing some of these shows. I've just got to have that set up in there. I can't rely on the storytelling for some of this stuff. It's. They're all. I love it. It's. It's like different specialties in the same game, and you can dabble around, and you know, be stronger in one and weaker in another, and not have to master all the facets. But uh, the 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 setup punch is kind of more of an acting exercise. I feel like because instead of telling the story as I'm in it and being able to walk through the audience what I'm walking through uh the set of punch I feel like I have to do so much more acting to make it sound like it's conversational and off the top of my head because it is so clearly written and planned right yeah yeah exactly exactly um yeah no it, it the storytelling aspect is weird because you get that pin drop silence when they're listening and yes like, and it's listening and it's not that it's not funny they're just it. Well, well, yeah, you can see their faces and everybody's like, everybody's jaws are on the floor listening to what tall tale you're coming up with. So you know you've got them. But if you just walked in the back of the room right now, it sounds like this guy's having the worst bomb of his life. But he's but you just right. got to sit there and make sure you hammer him over the head. And the taller the tale, the, the, the quieter the room because everybody's just like a campfire story. First time, first time that happened to me, I thought I was bombing. And then I realized the bartender was quiet. And I was like, oh, hang on. Oh, that's good. Ah, okay. He's listening. Did you? Okay. When you started comedy, did you even realize that was what you were doing? It wasn't a conscious choice to be a storyteller, was it? Uh, It kind of, well, 
the material that I bring 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 to the stage is all stuff that's happened to me. Um, and now I've started to layer stories on top of each other. Now I've taken smaller stories and now I'm layering them into bigger bits. And I'm nice. realizing that I've got to have callbacks in my stories and stuff like that to keep people looping back. Otherwise, they'll fall asleep. Uh, th- th- some people will just lose you completely. But if they're like, oh, no, he already spoke about that, and you bring it back. And then I'm like, okay. But layering stories is something I've started to do where I'm like, and I'm, and I'm going back to material that I wrote three years ago that I just wasn't good enough to pull off at the time. So, or maybe you see a new place to fit it in that makes it make more sense thematically. Well, well, yeah, kind of. And, and and that's kind of what's been working on. It's working well for me. Um, are there any, what, who, which, are there any comics that inspire you? Did you have any comedy mentors along the way? Anybody give you, or were you just doing it Han Solo, so to speak? No, I uh, definitely had mentors and people. The people I admire are a lot of my peer comedians that, uh, I, I love to just watch in sets. That's why I love these indie shows where there's no pressure on us. And I just watch them work and play and learn from them. But uh, uh, as far as mentors, yeah. Um, from the federal show, uh, a friend, Justin Reppel, watched my set. And we'd been doing the TK shows enough and running into each other enough times that he finally said, like, hey, do you want me to give you some advice? And so we went to a, a, a pie place the next day and just... He talked me through like how you even break in because I at that point wasn't even doing open mics. I was just doing whatever shows I booked and like wow. writing a novel of a script to do for them. And then the day of just like running it like crazy, trying to memorize paragraphs and paragraphs. And um, that was really eye opening to just the process of becoming a comedian and kind of where to look for your next step. And he walked me through that like held my hand through that, even though it was such a novice. And I'm so grateful for that because not many people would have taken the time when you're not sure when someone's so new that you're not sure they're going to stick with it and you might be wasting your breath. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I mean, I, I, I don't think I see people get through this solo, but it looks like it really sucks. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's no, it's already hard enough. I feel like there's no reason not to have help. Even if it's just asking people around you, like, hey, how are you doing that? Like, it seems impossible to me. Yeah, that was the one thing that actually, that was the one bonus that came out of the pandemic, especially on a writing platform, is it actually enabled me to actually do more writing with other people through through things like like Zoom. Oh, did you have writing sessions? Yeah, just picking up the phone. I did writing sessions all the time. Keep myself Yeah, nice. Yeah, that was that was pretty much what I did all the time. Do you think, on a different subject, as as a female comic, are you held to a different standard by comedy club bookers? Do you think? I haven't felt that. I feel I hold myself to a standard. But I um, I've never overheard a booker being like, "Oh, when the girl goes up, she's got a crush." Uh, okay. or like, or she's never coming back. I don't, I've never heard that double talk, but I've, I also don't know that I'd be privy to it. Right. Yeah. It's just, uh, obviously, obviously you guys aren't getting a fair chop at lineups. I mean, you just go look at every night. You look at the lineups at, at, at major comedy clubs and obviously all three, all, all of them are dropping the ball when it comes to booking female comics, um, regularly. 
I, I mean, I want to give the benefit of the doubt and say that bookers are doing their best because even just from producing, you know, small shows myself, I know how hard it is to make a lineup and they're doing it day in, day out, week after right. week. So I don't, I often, I think most of the time there's no, it's not meant to be that way. No one's going, oh, we can only have one female on the lineup or like right. trying to shut them out. I think numbers wise, it might just there is be a lot of, there is a lot available. Of numbers. Yeah, it, I, 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 try, I, I hate to say it. I think it's a numbers thing. I did point that out to someone a while back. I was like, the the sheer numbers of people trying to trying to break through out here in LA is is yeah. is interesting. I mean, someone was nice. That, someone said to me, it was just this layperson watching from the outside. I was like, this is such a supportive community, and it was they were talking about comedians at a laugh factory at a, at a, at a fairly elite level. Oh, they're so supportive, oh. and I'm like, yeah, well, that, it is supportive at this level, but just a touch below it, it's full on trench warfare. I, 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 yeah. I would not, I would definitely not call it supportive. Just the people trying to break through to that level are routinely hammering each other in the back and whatever you can do to get through. And because I, t and she goes, well, she said, well, why is it like that? And I said, cause there's about 5,000 of those people. And I, I, I realize now that comedy is the only place in the world, world where you can be in a room with people with different goal sets, all trying to get the same job, but they they have different True. end games, and they all look the same. You can't tell who's who in the zoo. So you'll have the guy who says, "I want to have a Netflix special one day," and then you'll have a guy who's a guy who's like, "Well, I just want to get booked here," and they're yeah. all competing for the same piece of cheese. I, think I um, I, th I mean, I have been incredibly lucky with the opportunities I've been given, but I also am busy enough that just with life that I, um, I guess I don't sweat getting the spots because having a night off means time to do laundry or write or do other things. So I'm in a fortunate position that, that not having a show on a given night to me, I don't interpret that as like, oh, I'm not doing well. I'm sure if I went a couple months of completely no bookings, that would probably freak me out a little bit. But that would also mean that I hadn't been reaching out to people about getting on, which I feel pretty confident about if I needed to get a tape quickly or something. I feel like there are friends who are pretty accommodating. That's off track. Right. <laughs> oh, no, we're going way off track here. I mean, because you're you're a drummer. You form you're, you're one half of a musical duo. Like I said, you've got other stuff you do. Do you do you think your your dedication to your music with Mick and Maxie? Do you think that transfers across to your work ethic as a stand up as well? Absolutely. As far as the tools to get ourselves out there, like it's the same acting, stand up, music. I've been using the same things, same same work process and um, strategies in all three. But it's funny that you bring that up because just a couple months ago, um, I did have a talk with my bandmate about taking a break because I was kind of limping by and I was stretched so thin and I still feel stretched so thin even having taken a break, which is a, a major signal to me. Um, but I just realized that like trying to do everything half-assed was so unfulfilling. And I remembered a time about five or six years ago where I quit all my day jobs just to have the experience of being a full-time comedian. I just wanted to know what it felt like to not be 
working all those part-time jobs. And so I went into credit card debt, of course, but I was doing two or three festivals a month. I was, I was getting out more than I ever had. And I just wanted to know what it felt like. So now that I know what full-time kind of, kind of looks like in my life, right. uh, I'm much more aware when I'm not meeting that. Yeah. That's kind of like the advice that I think I mentioned it once or twice on this podcast that I got given when I first got out to LA, I was, I was crashing on, on, uh, on a old rock stars couch. And he looked at me and he said, figure out how broke you can be. And you'll have maximum time for creativity on the back end of that. And it definitely said, takes you, a comfort level. Yeah. He said, if you want to have a pool and a nice car, then you're going to work six days a week for it out here in LA. And you're going to have one day to do what you came out here to do. But yep. if you can make it on dirt, then you'll get better at what you came out of to do quick because you're going to have that maximum amount of time during the evening and the days to knock it out. And yeah, that's been, yeah, that's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting way to do it. I think I'm a hobby away from being bankrupt at the moment. So <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's so attractive because you're in the place that where people do all these things, it's hard not to want to do it all. And, and, and especially when you've been denied the ability to do those things, I definitely had a lack mindset. Like I've been starved of all these things and I just want to do all of them. And then I sit down and realize that like being that fearful of missing an opportunity that's not, that means I'm worried I can't get it. And so that is ultimately, I think, like a lack of faith in myself. If I'm hustling right. so hard out of fear rather than truly enjoying each opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think just visiting Australia for the last two months made me exceptionally <sighs> grateful for the opportunities I have here. Cause even just talking to comics down there. I was like, so where do you guys work out? And they looked at me and said, what do you mean? And yeah, like, are there mics? What's the situation? No, well, there are, but not in the the workout rooms that LA is very lucky to have. They they just don't have that that kind of uh that kind of setup. Hmm. And uh yeah, it's um that infrastructure hasn't made it through down there yet. So Essentially, uh, people are working out material on a show, and I'm like, that's a lot of obviously a lot of pressure in that in that regard there. But the, just that capacity to be able to practice as much as we can here, I'm I'm very thankful for that. It is a luxury, and, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I couldn't wait to get back to it. I was um, I was I was pretty excited about it. Oh, that's good. Um, I thought we we're going to lose you to Australia because you'd realize how lovely it is. <laughs> it's funny, and you know what? This pisses me off a little bit because. The amount of people that were shocked when I came back and I'm sitting there going, I slept in a parking lot for 10 fucking months to keep the job I've got. Oh yeah, you're not going to give it up that easy. Here's the here's the crazy part. I had a plane ticket home when I lived in my car. This is, this is how much my parents like what I'm doing now. I had a plane ticket during the pandemic when I was living in my car to run home and run from this. And my dad is so proud of what I'm doing now. He was, and hadn't seen me in six years, but he was like, you know what? If you come back here, you might get stuck here and lose your green card. You'll definitely lose your job at the Lab factory you'll, and you'll lose all these connections that you're building. He said, just stay there, son. I mean, it'll be over soon. This was in about week four of the pandemic. And this thing went on for, I lived in, in that car for 10 months. And yeah, it was, uh, yeah, people were like, oh, you came back. And I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, I came back. 
I couldn't wait to get back at the end. I was like, all right, let's get back into this. I'm, I'm losing ground. I f- it felt like I was losing ground by being away. And then you get back and you realize it waited for me. It's still there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. it's uh, it's definitely still here. That's the main thing. So, Maxie, what's your favorite room to perform in? Or a favorite show? God help me. I love the belly room of the comedy store. Really? There's such good energy. Well, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's usually packed because it's small. So maybe right. if it weren't, that would be less less nice. But yeah, some of my biggest feeling first comedy accomplishments were going in there, and that's where I would invite people if I wanted them to come to a show that I really wanted them to see that as I was starting out. So I remember like twenty of my spin studio friends coming out, plus the desk staff and my and my bosses. Like I don't know, just Good, good, warm feelings. Well, that's cool. That's cool. It's, it's always one of those rooms where you never know who's going to drop into that one either. It's uh, yeah. It's one of those things where just anybody can drop in there. I saw Tarantino hanging out there the other day and stuff like that, and you're like, "What the hell?" Yeah, you're in this totally weird space-time continuum in there. So, do you on the other end of that spectrum? What is your worst bomb? Hmm. Well, actually, my worst bomb was in a stand-up class. And I say that because I think, you know, I've had bombs where I didn't do great, but then I'll listen back to the recording and it was fine. I don't think anyone hated me or that I said anything horrible. But I remember, oh my God, it still stops my heart to this day. The teacher had given us, I was very new to stand-up still, the teacher had given us an assignment to write monologue jokes as in taking a news something I have in the news and then writing a punchline about it. Well, I didn't understand the late night format concept. I was really reading like serious news articles going like, how the hell do I make this funny? It wasn't like, it wasn't like two ladies walk out of a Walmart with a llama stuffed in their pants. It was like serious stuff. And the only headline I could find was about Scarlett Johansson. Um, what was it? Uh, playing a trans woman or something. No, it might've been, it might've been the, the race where she was playing an Asian woman, something, one of those controversies. And so I just trying to be a good student wrote like a (laughs) seven or eight minute rant about just purely because I was trying the wordplay of it and like trying to write about it in some clever way. And I can still remember everyone's faces as I'm in class delivering this just blank horror staring back at me and I get to the end of it and I'm just like ripping through it trying to get through it and the teacher is like okay (laughs) so she was lovely basically it was a great lesson in like why talk about stuff unless it's yours to talk about and not that not that everything is off limits but that like if you really don't care ask yourself why am I writing this why am I performing this like is this something I care enough about to stand behind? So that was a good learning moment in a, and I will use this with all the affection, safe space. Oh, that's that's the way to do it. I mean, yeah, that's that's definitely the way to do it. When you start, and then and you realize too, when you're in something stuck in something like that, you're like, oh shit, now I got to yeah. finish this thing. Yeah, and you really don't like if I if I were on a show and I realized I was getting, you know filmed 
uh, and about to go viral just in a meltdown, I might be like, sorry, I'm not going to finish my time. Like I forfeit my paycheck and walk off stage. I don't know. I don't actually right. know because I'm not in that situation, but I'd like to think I would, I don't know. That's such a different beast, but that's why I'm in such defense of not live streaming shows without comics permission or, um, Oh yeah. Like people bringing their, their stuff to shows and, and, and recording stuff. I think that's such a violation of the mutual agreement you have with the audience that like, we're in a room here together. We're all safe. I might say things, right? but you're safe. You're fine. Now, uh, I just got my best bomb. I bombed what in front of my parents, performing in front of my parents for the first time in Australia. Were you talking about them? No, the entire set. I invited about, about 20 people to a show and turns out the rest of the lineup didn't invite anybody else. So it was all my 20 people. And I showed, and, and I did, I did comfortable stuff. I did all my, all, all the jokes I'm, I'm comfortable with, the jokes that crush. But mm-hmm. I'd put, I'd posted all these online, so everybody who was at this show had seen these jokes before. So the only people who were getting them, and really getting into it, were the three guys who booked me for the show. They were having a great old time, and everybody else was just giving me the smiles, and they're like, "Yeah, this is funny. We've heard it before, though, but this is funny." And it was kind of silence. It was crickets, but they're all smiling. I could see them all. And then we have to leave, and we have to drive back to my parents' house, which is about an hour and ten minutes outside of the city. And my dad doesn't listen to the radio, and it's dark. And we're driving along, and about ten minutes into the drive, my dad just leans into it and just looks at me and goes. Well, your confidence is really good, son. Oh, that's the worst! And I'm like, fuck! <sighs> shut up! And then, then another two minutes goes past, and he goes, Yeah, your delivery's spot on. He says, You had the best delivery of the night. So I was really impressed with your stage presence. That was that was fantastic, and I'm just like, please stop, please stop. Yes. And then he then he then he's done a thirty seconds of silence. And he goes, yeah, all you just got to do is just work on that material, and you'll be fine. I'm like, ah, I'm gonna fucking, yeah, I almost jumped. This out is of the movie. worked on. Yeah, this is the worked on three years worth of material. I almost jumped out of a moving car. Uh, <laughs> I jumped out of a fucking car and was like, kill me now. I think we have we all have that with our parents hearing our stuff. Oh. My God, it was just, I was just like, fuck. I was like, so yeah, moral of the story, kids, don't be afraid to swing for the fences and try some risky shit. There you go. Your parents aren't going to like it anyway, so you might as well. Well, well, yeah, I had a lot of material I had to X out while I was down there because I'm like, I don't want to embarrass my parents either. I'm like, there's some horrendous stuff I talk about on stage that they'll never hear. Did you talk about throwing the rat off the blanket? Because I love that. I didn't do, didn't do that one down there. I probably should have. But I, that one gets more shocked than anything. People can't believe I actually uh. slept in a bed with a rat for thirty minutes, and um, I can't either. And I'm still um, come on, people have slept with worse. I'm still emotionally scarred, to be to be honest. Uh, yeah, I, I still uh, I still I still make sure this fucking apartment is airtight. Don't worry about that. Nothing. <laughs> so we've had a. Uh, We've had the fallout, obviously, from all the Will Smith stuff. Um, obviously, audiences, it's no secret now that audiences seem to feel more empowered than they used to. Um, mm. Have you been on the end of bad heckling? Do you deal with that a lot? 
No, I would. Some, you know what? Sometimes when I'm on a run, I'll just um, think of my responses to certain heckles that have never happened. But like, just so I'm ready for them, uh, I've been in awkward rooms in middle of nowhere where I clearly was not the demographic they were looking for, and so sometimes it's gotten a little like restless. But I don't think I've had anyone really give me a hard time. I'm sure I've had some drunk girls making noise, but nothing stands out to me. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I was a nightclub doorman for 16 years with a weight problem. So at that point, I think I've just about had every heckle you can possibly have at this point. I don't think anybody yep. can anything new. I don't think there's any new variation of you're a fat prick that I haven't heard at this point. <laughs> so... Yeah, none of that offends me to to this point. I don't think. I think the yeah, I think yeah, the worst heckle is still is still bone silence. I think that's still the worst heckle of the lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you do you do you have any uh, pre-show rituals? I know a lot of some people are superstitious. Some people have to prepare every way the same way for every show. Is there something that you do, or are you just you can just jump it, jump into this thing and drop into it? I like to have a, you know, a, a couple of minutes to myself just to lock in what I, what I'm doing and like my hope to be playful for the set and to listen to what the previous comedian is doing. So I know if there's anything else I want to comment on as I'm getting on stage. But, uh, for the most part, no, I try to not, um, not go into lockup mode and I just always chew a piece of gum before the stage because I feel like I can't go on if there's something in my teeth or my breath is bad. Have you ever left the gum in? No, but um, I did almost pay Sarah Lawrence for chapstick once because I was like, I'm about to go on stage. My lips are super dry. And I was asking, I think it was at, I think I was sitting in the audience at like Kill Tony or something. And I would just start realizing like my lips were so dry. There's a, an ocean of open mic comedians around me that I don't actually know, but I know the face of. And I'm like shiftily asking each of them for chapstick. And at the same time, I'm like, I don't know if that's something I should share with any of you, but I was so desperate. That's fucking hilarious. Now, um, yeah, I, uh, I haven't quite developed any, any pre-show pre I used to play, I played a lot of rugby and I was never, I was one of those guys who had to have the pre-game shit. So thankfully that hasn't <laughs> stand up. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, you can't go on stage if you have to poop, if you have to pee, or if you're hungry. Well, actually, no, I take that back. Some people get nervous and don't like anything in their stomach, but if I don't have something in my stomach, then it makes me feel nervous. The empty feeling is the same for me. So every show, people will see me, like, snacking and saying, yeah, I gotta do what you gotta do. I did watch a comedian leave the gum in a couple of weeks ago, and it made them instantly unlikable more. Could you hear it on the mic? Oh, you could. Oh, no, it was obvious. Uh, she Ugh. was leaning in into it, and Ugh. they already didn't like her before she went up and started chewing gum. And then once she started uh. eating in front of them, yeah, it, I, I don't think it had the effect that she was going for. I think she was really trying to bring them back around, and then once she realized she just alienated them more, she was kind of stuck in it. Then, Ugh. then people just want to see a magic. <laughs> then people just want to see a magic trick. They want to see you swallow that damn thing, and and really go for it. And you go radio. Nothing she says. They'll just be wondering what she's going to do with the gum. Exactly. Now, um, 
from obviously from a from a male side of things, do you find that the uh, the female comedy community is is internally supportive of itself here in LA, or what do you think? Yeah, no, there's been a great effort of the of the ladies to organize and have mics that are supportive for just them, or or you know writing groups and and help each other get spots. Uh, so I think it is. There's um, uh, like my friend Sam Bear is up in Santa Barbara, but she really pushes female comedians forward and makes opportunities for them. Um, it's funny though, because the men who wouldn't have experienced this, when you walk into some of the ladies' mics, some of them are so incredibly supportive that you can't get work done because they're just trying to be supportive and laugh at everything. And then some of them are so scary to walk into because you feel like, like I went to one that just felt like five Miranda Priestleys in the front row. It was like women with perfect bobs and great eyewear and like a fashionable scarf. And I know they were just like listening and learning and, you know, doing their stuff and just analyzing, but it felt so scary and cold of a room to walk into because I was like, these ladies are going to like make, they're, they're going to make fun of my hair after this or something. <laughs> Almost like everybody had a clipboard. Yeah. 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 Totally. But no, I think, <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, when you're, I, I understand you do a lot of acting. I've seen some of the mm -hmm. stuff you've done. Uh, <laughs> Especially the shark. I love the shark movie. I love the shark. I love that you watched that. Now we have that shared experience forever. Yeah, I, I love. I love. I've forgotten the name of it though. What was the name of the shark movie? Again? How could you forget Shark Side of the Moon? Shark Side of the Moon. That's right. Or Nazi as it's known in Japan, Moon Shark. Nazi sharks on the moon. Were they Nazis? Uh Russian. Russian. I apologize. How different. <laughs> I was I was high <laughs> as shit when I watched it. I, I got a, I, uh -oh. I had a I had a friend who's a who's a ballet dancer in San Francisco. He posted a video of this. He posted a screenshot of this, and I'm like, I saw your name on the front of it. I'm like, I know her. I'm watching that. That's wild. And he goes, <laughs> and he goes bullshit, and I'm like, no. So we both watched the whole damn thing. And oh my god, yeah, you had two guys into this movie, and like, but my question is coming to it is. Being a comedian and going onto a set of a movie of a movie or a TV show, is there mm -hmm. an is there ever an expected responsibility from the producers or the director of that show? Be like, you're the comedian, make this funny, make this dial, make this shitty dialogue that we've made, pump it up and make it funny because you're the funny one. Come on. You know what? Um, a little bit of both because, and I say both because what I'm about to say is, uh, uh, I feel like there is a division between a comedian and an actor who can do comedy because, um, yeah, like comedic scenes that I've read for acting, sometimes I'm like, I mean, this isn't funny. And then I'll be in a workshop and watch other actresses do it and hear the feedback from the casting directors and just be like, wow, this is, totally not what I think of as funny, but it's just a different animal. And uh, so like on set, I usually am just trying to prove that I'm a good actor because the directors and producers are so used to comedians not being trained to act for camera. I only know that from another casting director who like finished, a, I finished a read and he was like, huh, and you're a comedian? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, huh. 
this is a fucking really good read. I was like, thank you. I can do more than one thing. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, but there was one cool um, show. I did Maggie. Unfortunately, it didn't get more than a season, but it. I was a fitness trainer who keeps, like, running back and forth with her class, uh, like, yelling things at him, them. So in between takes, I was having to come up with a line to yell to them, and we did, like, 40 takes, uh, a line to yell to them that would also be TV-friendly. So that was really fun to suddenly, like, come up with things. And no one said I had to. I probably could have stuck with the same thing over and over and been fine. But it was really gratifying to hear the crew be like, oh, yeah, that was funny. You just came up with that? And it was like, okay, well, I took the 45 seconds in between takes to, like, really think about it. But, yeah. Like a G-rated full metal jacket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Maxie, what's uh, what's your what's your big goal for 2023? What do you got? What do you got in the pipeline this year? <sighs> I I am finally going SAG, the Actors Union, this month. So mm. my goal is to start getting higher paying. Well, start you know getting more acting work to support the comedy. Um, I don't want the comedy having that stress. Uh, so I'm staying in town. I'm trying to stay available for those rather than do as many out of town gigs as I used to. Um, but really, I'm just open to whatever's coming. I'm excited. It feels like there's a good energy. People going out to the clubs and comedy shows again. It just feels like as long as I put myself out there, I'm getting seen. And good things are ahead. I don't know. I, I have noticed that in LA. It just it does seem like acting pays the bills for the stand-up. Mm -hmm, and that's something mm -hmm. yeah. that, I'm, uh, that I'm really trying to branch into myself this year. Obviously, it's... Uh, it's going to be a trick with this rude head I've got on my shoulders, but as a, as a, casting, <laughs> as a casting director... You're going to get all the character roles. Oh, yeah. Character they they called it a rude head? Well, what he told me, he said, he said, you look like the guy that James Bond kicks the shit out of before he gets to the last guy. <laughs> said, That's a good... He said, whatever you do, don't fucking change any of this. And I was like, nice. all right, cool. He goes, because then we're going to work on everything else. And I was like, <laughs> couldn't figure, couldn't figure out if it was an intervention or advice at that point. But, uh, but yeah, he said, whatever you do, don't drop your accent, work on nice. a couple more, probably some villainous mm -hmm. ones, he said, and you'll be all right. Yeah. And, uh, dropping the weight didn't hurt either. That was probably a good thing as well. So yeah not not to, yeah 400 pounds is big too big but but 260 i should be able to 250 i should be able to work something out hopefully you're looking great and you're still intimidating i think you're at the best point well if you ask anybody from, from my former jobs i don't think i'm going to drop the intimidating thing anytime soon i've got plenty of nah. practice from that but uh, are you back at laugh factory i'm back you, at laugh I, factory. I haven't been there okay yeah i'm back i'm back there now um which is cool. nice but yeah all the uh experience from 20 years of Doing dirty deeds is definitely uh is definitely carried well to do in the stage anyway, but um <laughs> so Maxie, where can, where can people find your music, your acting, your your comedy, all of that? Where where's the best place to look for you? Hell yeah, I'm on Instagram at Mad Maxie M A D D M A X I. Uh, someone made it up when I had my hair cut like Charlize and Mad Max, uh, <laughs> and uh, MaxieWitrack.com. Well, there you go. We have we have one final question that we ask everybody who comes on the verbal gym, and we ask them 
Maxie, if you could go back to that first set upstairs at the NoHo, uh, upstairs at the Federal NoHo, and give yourself a piece of stand-up advice, knowing what you know now, what would that be? Uh, Maxie, take the braids out of your hair and drop the bit that you're trying to make work about white women should be allowed to wear cornrows. <laughs> that is that was it. That very was, that was specific your first advice. Step. But I think she might. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was swinging for the fences. I was trying to be the next Eliza. I was like, I'm going to make such good points. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to really make them see the light so that I can wear cornrows. And you know, um, cultural appreciation, appreciation be dam- appropriation be damned. I've got this. I had, yeah, that's what the point I was trying to make was that like, like just let us appropriate because we're not as cool. So like uh, you might as well let us have this one. But um, I think that's why a couple years later, karma came about so that when I bleached my hair, it all broke off and I had to cut it into a pixie cut. Uh, I think that was karma. Uh, you don't get cornrows, you get this. Well, there you go, folks. Maxie, <laughs> you've, been a trooper, you've been a trooper on the verbal gym today. Um, on a self-promotion note, folks, if you want to catch me in Houston in April, I'll be there with previous guests of the verbal gym, Johnny Mitchell and Mike Ishak on April 29 at Darwin's Pub, and you can find the tickets at eventbrite.com. Just search for Dan Green and Friends. Uh, Maxie, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for stopping by today. Thanks for having me, Dan. Cheers.